You can be turning in yours to Mark chapter 15 this morning. Mark chapter 15. We sang about it this morning and in a sense reenacted it as we waved the palm branches around a little bit. It is Palm Sunday. And as such, we commemorate and remember what was the opening act of the final week of Jesus' life on this earth leading up to the crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. We we talked about Palm Sunday not that long ago because we've been in a study in the Gospel of Mark, and when we were in chapter 11, uh, we dealt with that. So I'm not going to deal with, with the actual uh, realities of Palm Sunday today. You can go back and listen to that again if you want to. Uh, I don't know if our podcast is set up to date, but it's close, and it'll be there soon if it's not. Just to sum it up, this was Jesus presenting himself as he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and as they waved and, and, and laid the palm branches in front of him and their coats in front of him and things like that, that was Jesus presenting himself to Israel in fulfillment of Scripture. He was presenting himself as their Messiah. This was Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, in fulfillment of Scripture. And while that passage of Scripture back in Mark 11 that we looked at, and every passage that describes Palm Sunday, seems to indicate... Uh, that there was some initial support and praise. It didn't take long at all. By the end of the week, the praises had been replaced with pronouncements of judgment and shouts of Hosanna, replaced with shouts of crucify. And the one who was their king was tried and condemned. Let's read about that part of the story. Mark chapter 15. And let's begin in verse number 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. They brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour. They crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. 
Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him. Father God, we're thankful for your word. And oh, Father, we're so sorry for this part of it. Lord, I pray today that you would just remind us afresh anew of just what Jesus did for us. I pray if there's anybody here who's never really thought it through even for the first time that they would this day, and I pray that if there are believers here to whom this is old news, that they've heard it over and over and over, multiplied Easter's and Palm Sundays and Good Fridays, Lord, I pray you would refresh it in our hearts and minds. May we never let it go stale, what Jesus did for us. How can it be he was crucified? And I pray, Father, today that you would fill me with your spirit, that you'd help me to preach this in a way that is effective and And Lord, I pray even more than that, the Holy Spirit would take these words and apply them to hearts. Lord, if the Spirit does not work, if the Spirit does not take this and apply it to the hearts of souls can be saved, lives can be refreshed and changed, backslidden Christians can be turned back to the Lord. Help us to see the cross, help us to see our Savior there. May it change our hearts and change them forever, I pray in Jesus. Christ has for sin. What a wonderful Savior. We are redeemed. Price is paid. Amen. We've been in Mark for a long time, and one of the things that we have learned about John Mark's style of writing is that he didn't use a lot of words. His book, his gospel account, is the shortest of the four gospels, and his gospel is one that moves along rapidly, such as seen here in this brief account of what is probably one of the most important parts of Jesus' crucifixion. He gives us the facts. Just the facts, man. Wasn't that Joe Friday? He gives us the facts without a lot of flowery language, without a lot of description, a lot of in-depth analysis. He just lays it out there and lets us see it very simply. Notice with me how he describes the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, his trials before the Jews and the Gentiles uh, was over. and His condemnation by Pontius Pilate was complete. And according to verses 15 through 20, he was led away. To be crucified. Pilate had him scourged. Scourged. And of course we know what that means. That means that he was mercifully and horrifically beaten. With the Roman flagellum. Horrible. Wicked instrument of torture. Uh, it consisted of several strands. A whip of several strands. The ends of each strand being embedded with bone or stone or metal or something. So that it literally ripped the flesh. Pilate had him scourged. Scourging was often fatal in and of itself. Jesus was scourged. Then he was led out to be crucified, according to verse 20. But Mark points out that he was so weak that he uh, he couldn't carry the cross himself. The, the customary thing was that the, the condemned would carry at least the crossbeam of the cross themselves as they were led through the city to uh, the place of crucifixion. But Jesus was so weak he couldn't do that. One of the other Gospels says he fell uh, underneath of that. 
And so Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, according to verse 21, was therefore pressed into service to carry that cross for him. Now, I think this is interesting. I think it's interesting because I don't know if, you, if you've noticed this or not, but Mark is the only person of the four gospel writers, the only one to mention the names of Simon's son, sons, Alexander and Rufus. Now, why would he mention that? I believe, and I hope we all believe, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that every word has some significance and some meaning to us. So why did Mark include the names of Alexander and Rufus here? Well, we know, and we've talked about it before, that Mark's primary audience was Roman in nature. He was primarily writing to Roman readers. And so a lot of people conclude that he included those names because his audience might have known who they were, would have known who they were. And when you think about that, it's interesting. We studied Romans a while back, and if you remember, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans, a lengthy letter to the Romans, at the end of which he included a great big long list of names. Do you remember that? There's this interesting little nugget in Romans chapter 16 and verse number 13. He said to them, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. It's probable that this was the son of Simon. We can't be absolutely certain, but it is probable That is the Rufus that is mentioned here. Some have suggested, and you can look this verse up on your own, but Acts 13 and verse number 1 mentions a Simon, and some have suggested that that was the same one who was pressed into service here. And in that verse, he's described as a saved man. One man said, we have good reason to believe that Simon trusted the Savior and went home and led his two sons to the Lord. No doubt many of Mark's Roman readers knew Alexander and Rufus, and perhaps they had even known. Simon. Now, I don't want to go crazy here. We can't be certain about any of this, but there is a wonderful application here. Just from the mention of these two names, Alexander and Rufus. We have to be reminded that God uses experiences, sometimes even terrible experiences. Imagine the experience of Simon being forced to pick up that cross at the point of a sword to carry it. And yet, God uses experiences like that oftentimes to bring grace into our lives. Was Simon converted? Was he saved as a result of what he experienced on that day? We don't know, and we won't know until we get to heaven, but the evidence certainly seems to point that way. Romans 16, 13 certainly seems to refer to his wife and son. It reminds us to be thankful for experiences, even bad ones sometimes, because even then the Lord might be pouring out his grace on our life even when we cannot see it. Ray Boltz sang a song about this particular event. It's a beautiful song. I don't know if you've heard it or not. Most of you probably have. It's called Watch the Lamb. Anybody ever heard that song before? Watch the Lamb. Listen to the words there. These, some of the words, these are spoken from the viewpoint of Simon. He's the one who's speaking in this song. And he said, I watched him as he struggled. I watched him as he fell. The cross came down upon his back and the crowd began to yell. In that moment, I felt such agony. In that moment, I felt such loss. Till a Roman soldier grabbed my arm and screamed, you, carry his cross. At first I tried to resist him, then his hand reached for his sword. So I knelt and took the cross from the Lord. I placed it on my shoulder, started down the street. The blood that he'd been shedding was running down my cheek. Can you imagine that? How could an experience like that not have affected Simon? So we don't know for sure. But the evidence seems to be that it's a life-changing experience. Well, so Simon carried the cross. They brought Jesus to Golgotha, Mark goes on to describe. Of course, Golgotha is a word that means the place of the skull. 
Other places you might see the word Calvary used, and Calvary is the Latin equivalent. Both of them refer to the same place of execution. Been to Israel four times now, and every time they take us to two different competing places that uh, various groups have decided are probably the location of Calvary or Golgotha. One of them is covered up with a big church. It's been there since, I think, the 4th century, called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Another one is Gordon's Calvary, which is a much more recent thing, or the Garden Tomb, as many people refer to it as. The, the likelihood is that the one underneath of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the one, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Jesus was led to that place wherever it was. He was nailed to a cross, lifted up, raised into the air. And Mark wastes no words describing that. Did you notice he's very, very brief? He, he doesn't go into the horrific details of the crucifixion. He says simply, uh, in verse number 25, and they crucified him. And of course, one commentator suggested that no Roman who would have been reading this needed a description of crucifixion. They knew what it was. And they crucified. It was the third hour, he says, when they crucified him. The Jews counted time from hours from sunrise, and so the third hour would have been 9 a.m. that they crucified him. So the approximate timeline of the day would be this. His trial and condemnation at 6 a.m., at least the one before Pilate. That would be verse 1, followed by his crucifixion at 9, verse 25, and his death at 3 p.m., according to verse 32. Two other men were crucified with him, one on either side, verse 27. While on the cross, somehow these two guys found the strength and the motivation to ridicule and mock him. I I can't fathom that, but they did. Of course, we know from Luke's gospel that one of them came to his senses and was saved and placed his faith and trust in Jesus. But Mark doesn't describe that. Mark only describes their mocking. Mark describes the fact that the passers-by and even the chief priests joined in the mockery and blasphemy, verses 29 through 32. And it's interesting here. i got to pause on this part, too, because it's interesting. These chief priests might have thought they were just simply making fun and just mocking and heaping scorn on their enemy, but they're mocking words actually spoke a great theological truth. One man said, ironically, their words express profound spiritual truth. Jesus was to save others, delivering them from the power of sin. Then he could not save or rescue himself from the sufferings and death appointed to him by God. He had said earlier in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He must endure such suffering and separation. There was no other way. The taunters said he saved others, but he can't save himself. And unknowingly, they stated the very truth of the crucifixion. Jesus' death is a ransom for others. And precisely in order to save these others, he must not, he cannot save himself. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world, set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone. Well, a great darkness descended over the earth, Mark goes on, descended over the land from the sixth hour to the ninth. That means from noon until 3 p.m. it was pitch black dark. During this time, there's no evidence that Jesus spoke anything from the cross. Silence from Jesus. And then the silence was broken by his loud cry in verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then his final shout, he breathed his last. Verse 37. 
Jesus, this very one about whom the entire city had sung and rejoiced only a few days before, that. Now, Mark mentions some things here that I think are interesting. Five different phenomena, if you want to use that word, that took place uh, throughout this entire event. Let me mention those five things because I think uh, that they, they, they'll they help us to see just exactly what took place there on the cross. First of all, look at verse 33. He mentions the fact that there was darkness. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three hours from noon until 3 p.m. darkness. Now, I know some people have this strange need to try to explain everything the Bible says in natural terms. Some people cannot accept Something might just be supernatural. Some people cannot accept that uh, this could just be something that God did. They have to be able to try to figure out some way that this fits into the natural ebb and flow of, of what they can see and experience in the world. And so one of the things that people have come up with is the fact that this must have been a, an eclipse of the sun that took place when Jesus was crucified. But that's nonsense. It's impossible. Because the fact is that it took place at the high point of the sun on Passover, which occurred during the full moon. It's not possible for there to be an eclipse during that time. It's not an eclipse. It was not any other naturally explainable phenomena. One man pointed out that the Greek tenses indicate that it came suddenly, so it just was suddenly dark. And all the Gospels regarded as a supernatural wonder. Here's what some have said about it. Some have said this. This darkness was a symbol of God the Father taking his presence away from his Son who bore the sin of all humanity. It was a symbol of God the Father turning away from his Son. The darkness signified the curse of God. At the Exodus, a plague of darkness spread over the land before the first Passover lamb was slain. Now, before the death of the ultimate Passover lamb, there again was darkness. God's judgment was being poured out in a midday night. Warren Wiersbe suggested that the darkness at Calvary was an announcement that God's firstborn and beloved son, the Lamb of God, was giving his life for the sins of the world. So what happened during those three hours of darkness? Let me quote from one of my favorite commentators here. He says this, he says, Wave after wave of the world's sin was poured over Christ's sinless soul. Again and again during those three hours, his soul recoiled and convulsed as all the lies of civilization, the murders of a thousand killing fields, the whorings of the world's armies, the noxious brew of hatreds, jealousies, and pride were poured. His purity. What happened during those three hours of darkness? Scripture says he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Scripture says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be in the righteousness of God. And along with the darkness came separation. Notice verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you? forsaken me. We've already mentioned the fact that Mark doesn't spend any time describing the physical torments of the cross or of crucifixion. They were many, they were enormous, but he describes none of them. What he did emphasize was the spiritual aspect of Christ's suffering, and those were far worse. There were seven sayings that Jesus spoke from the cross that are described throughout the four Gospels. Uh, Mark only mentions one. The only one he mentions is the one describing spiritual separation that he experienced from God. Why have you 
forsaken. One man said God's holy nature demanded separation as the sun became sin. Not even the most evil man, including Nero or Hitler, has ever known in this life the horror of being completely cut off from God. Christ knew. Separation. Jesus, the very Son of God, was for that brief period of time, alone, died for you and for me. So there was darkness. Along with that darkness came separation. And then there was the shout of accomplishment. Notice verse number 37. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. What did he say there? What was that shout? Mark doesn't tell us. He doesn't say what the loud cry was, but I believe John's gospel does. John's gospel told us that he he, he said this. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I believe that's what he said. It is finished. That was his loud cry. Now, some have questioned, and maybe you noticed it as we read, some have questioned why Jesus refused the drink offered to him in verse number 23. Did you notice that? But then he took the drink that was offered to him in verse number 36. Why the discrepancy? And I, my personal opinion is the answer, the answer is, is very, very simple, really. He refused the first drink because it was drugged. It was uh, it was kind of a thing that was done. I don't know if it was just tradition or what. But sources tell us that, that the women, Jewish women, would meet those who were being crucified and offer them this drugged wine to deaden their pain and to help them uh, through the horrible time of suffering. Jesus, once he realized that's what it was, he wouldn't take it. Why wouldn't he take it? Because he wanted to be in full fa- in full use of his faculties. He he wanted to have nothing that would deaden the experience. He didn't, he didn't go to the cross against his will. He did it willingly. He chose it. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the fullest. And he did it in full, complete uh, possession of his faculties. That first one was drugged. But the second one was not. The second one was just sour wine. It was just a common drink. Matter of fact, one of the other gospels says he asked for it. He says, I thirst. And they gave it to him. Why did he do that? I think it's very simple. I think because his mouth was dry. I think because he'd been hanging there for three hours. I think because he had something he wanted to say. And he had to make sure that everyone could hear it. And that's something that he wanted to say. He wanted to say as loudly as he could possibly say it. And so he shouted, it is finished. Now notice some things here. Notice he did not say, I am finished. That's an important distinction. That's not what he said at all. And he didn't say, they have finished me. He didn't say that either. Another important distinction. He said, it is finished. The work is finished. Paul wrote to Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his word. And when he shouted, it is finished. That phrase, it is finished, by the way, and we talk about this a lot because it just happens to be my favorite Greek word of all time, but it is the Greek word tetelestai, which literally means paid in full. Paid in full. Uh, and it's written here in the perfect tense, which means literally it has been and it forever will be finished. It has been paid for, paid for, and it forever will be paid for. Accomplished. So, accomplishment. And then that accomplishment brought access. Just two more things and we're done. Look at verse number 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Access. That veil was probably torn right about the time of the evening sacrifice. Can you imagine the people who were in there when that took place? Probably right about that time. 
No longer would there be a need for continuous sacrificing of animals. That is no longer a requirement. No longer was there a need for the priests to offer the blood of sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. No longer was there a need for a veil between the common person and the holiest of holy. Jesus' accomplishment brought access. Now, I don't know who all's here this morning. You, you may have been taught. You may have been taught that you need a priest to stand between you and God. You may have been taught that you cannot have direct access, but that's not true. Jesus' accomplishment on the cross brought access. You can go directly to and talk directly to God. Now, you need no intermediary. The way to the holiest of holies is open. You have access to the very throne room of God because of what Jesus did. It is finished means way is open. And by the way, one source I read, I, I find it hard to believe this. Maybe somebody could look this up for me and see if this is really true. But one source I read suggested that in Jesus' day, in Herod's remodeled temple, that curtain, that veil, was 60 feet by 30 feet and 4 feet thick. Now that seems to me to all has. But even if it was 4 inches thick, it would be an astonishing thing that it was just sliced open as with a sword. And one other gospel uh, says from the top to the bottom. So, access. One last thing. All of this brought revelation. Look at verse number 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, few sources I consulted in studying this believe that that centurion was really professing faith in Christ. That this is a profession of faith leading to salvation. Few think that. And if you compare this to the other Gospels, uh, the other Gospels say he said other things, like this was a righteous man or this was a son of God. So we can't be too dogmatic about that. But I do think that just as the chief priests had earlier unwittingly stated the Gospel, in their foolish statement, he unwittingly confessed exactly who Jesus was and is. Here's how one guy explained it. He said, the point is, Jesus' death, carefully considered, revealed who he was. And we who know the Lord see so much more than the soldier. For we see the depths Jesus went to in order to redeem us. We see him writhing under our sins as they are poured onto him. We see that he became a curse for us, that we might become righteous. We see him totally alone, undergoing the trauma of separation from the Father in darkness and silence. And we say, with the deepest passion, this man was the Son of God. And so what does all this mean? What does it all mean to you? If we sift through all the details and the descriptions of all the events leading up to the cross and occurring while Jesus hung there on that cross, let's boil it down to its very essence. We find the truth is really quite simple. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's what happened. Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you. One, one poet, ancient poet, wrote, he said, oh God, I love thee. I love thee not out of hope of heaven for me, nor fearing not to love and be in the everlasting burning. Thou, thou my Jesus, after me didst reach thine arms out. For my sake suffered nails and lamps, mocked and marred countenance, sorrows passing number, sweat and care and cumber, yes, and death. This for me, and thou could see me sinning. And I, why should I not love thee? Jesus, so much in love with 
God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you. He knew you and he knows you. He knows your every sin. And yet he died to cover them. He knows the blackness of your heart. And yet loved you. He died for you. You Look at all the other things. Father God, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday had a clear view that that was what was going to happen at the end of the week. Yet nothing stopped him. Thank you, Lord, that he went there in full possession of his faculty. Thank you, Lord, that he, he went through all that he went through because it was the only way. God, the blackness of those three hours of complete darkness and silence. All my sins. The sins of all who have ever lived and ever will live were poured out upon him and he bore them. Bore them willingly. How can that be? He would love us that much. And now we thank you, Lord, that once that was accomplished, he could say it is finished. Everything was paid for. Every one of my sins, every evil thought, every evil word, every evil deed, every mistake, egregious sin, Lord, and not just me, but everyone in this room, everyone in this world. Now, Lord, even though Mark doesn't say this here, we know from the rest of Scripture that we need to do something about that. We need to trust in the one who did that for us. So I pray today if there's even one who has never yet come to the place where they knelt at the foot of that cross and said, Jesus, I know you do this for me because I know that I am a sinner and I know my only hope. So Lord, if there's even one like that today, I pray they do it this day. Whether they step out and come to the front of this room, they do it right where they stand. Help us, Father, to see the cross. Help us to remember what Jesus did. And if we've never never availed ourselves of the salvation that is available there, then may we do it this day. And if we are Christians and we've grown cold to these things, may we be warm today and dedicate our lives to the one who loved us that much. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Bless this invitation. We give it in